Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of February 11th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. I was thinking about snapshots this week. And most of the time I use a Nikon digital camera, but sometimes I don't want all the stuff that comes with a single-lens reflex digital camera. I take the SLR with me. I have to take extra lenses. The camera itself is large enough that it's going to require an extra bag. That means a carry-on if I'm flying. And it's more stuff to schlep around the city. What we really need is some sort of camera with a 3x or more zoom lens, sufficient quality for snapshots, and enough memory for a vacation or business trip. The images that the camera would create have to be, if not superb, at least sufficient that they would not be something I would object to. Oh, and it has to fit in a pocket. How easy is that? Well, let's take a little side trip on 3x zoom lenses and zoom in general. You see a lot of digital cameras that mention digital zoom. Bad idea. Stay away from it. As far as the number on zoom, a 3x zoom means the lens maximum setting is three times its minimum setting. So, for example, if you have a lens that goes from 50 to 150 millimeters, that's a 3x lens. If you have a lens that goes from 100 to 300 millimeters, that's a 3x lens. Most digital cameras these days state their effective focal length of the lens as if it were a 35-millimeter camera. It's not. The focal length of the lens is actually far different from what is stated, but most people are more familiar with 35-millimeter equivalents, so you may get a digital camera with a 35-millimeter equivalency of 50 to 150, 35 to 105, something along that line. Those would be 3x zoom lenses, from a moderate wide-angle lens to a moderate telephoto lens. Well, on a recent trip to New York City, I stopped by B&H Photo on 9th Avenue at 34th Street, told them what I was looking for, and by the way, I told them it can't cost a lot because I don't have a lot to spend, don't want to spend a lot on a camera that I'm just going to carry around for snapshots. Well, I walked out after spending a little more than $100 with an Olympus FE-180. The FE-190 is the same camera, costs more, and it has a special rechargeable battery. The FE-180 costs less and uses AA cells comes with a couple of AA nickel metal hydride batteries, and I have a lot more of those at home. That was the right choice for me. In fact, I prefer cameras that use AA batteries because if I run out of charged batteries, it's easy to pop into a gas station, a grocery store, a convenience store. Almost any place has AA batteries. The camera is about three inches wide, two inches tall, no more than an inch thick at its thickest point. That's where the batteries go. Now, the FE-190 is a little bit slimmer. That's because it uses that special battery, one that you can't just go into a store and buy a replacement for. There is no standard viewfinder on this camera. I consider that a shortcoming, but the LCD screen on the back is at least relatively large. The FE-180 includes what Olympus calls digital image stabilization. The sales guy at B&H told me that was useless, but I already knew that. The honesty was kind of a nice touch, though. 
what Olympus, Fuji, and most of the other manufacturers call digital image stabilization is nothing more than a programming function that causes the camera to boost its ISO rating. That would be the speed, the effective speed of the sensor, which equates to film speed, so that it uses a faster shutter speed. It does this at the expense of adding noise to the image. A lot of noise. This is not image stabilization any more than digital zoom is really zoom. Some cameras do come with image stabilization. This is either built into the lens or it's built into the camera. But you won't find it on any camera costing less than $500. Typically, you'll find it on the, the higher-end cameras, the real digital single-lens reflex cameras. So image stabilization, as far as I'm concerned, is a lie. And I wish Olympus and other camera companies would just tell the truth. They have decent cameras at reasonable prices. They have 3x optical zoom, and that's it. For me, that's enough. I don't need image stabilization on a snapshot camera. I know how to hold the camera steady when it's likely that the shutter speed is going to be slow. I know that if it's near dark and I'm trying to take a picture, the shutter speed is going to be slow. And I know I can brace myself on a lamp post, a railing, lean against a wall, find some other way to make the camera stable. Another feature included with the camera was the advanced manual on CD. The camera comes with a quick start sheet and with a manual that's in several languages to repeat basic information from the quick start sheet. The advanced manual is nothing more than the manual that should have been printed and included with the camera, so this feature also caused the sales guy at B&H to roll his eyes. B&H isn't the country's largest camera store for nothing. The camera comes with what I would say is a useless amount of built-in memory, but it also includes a memory slot for XD cards. These cards are tiny, and they're inexpensive. A 512-megabyte card can be had for about $20. A 1-gigabyte card, and this is one made by Olympus, twice as large, for $30. A tiny amount of built-in memory is probably there so that the manufacturer can omit an external memory card and still provide a camera that will take images right out of the box. Manufacturers used to include 16 or 32-megabyte cards, and a lot of users probably just took those out and threw them away. So that was a good decision on the part of the manufacturers. Now, is a 6-megapixel Olympus snapshot camera better than a 6-megapixel Nikon D100? Well, in a word, no. The D100 sells for more than five times the cost of the Olympus snapshot camera, so something has to be missing. For example, no RAW mode. RAW mode allows the camera to capture more information from the sensor by storing more bits per pixel. The files are always larger, but you can do more editing with the image once you get it back to your computer. There is no way to change the sensor's color balance. The color of light changes depending on the time of day and depending on the kind of light you happen to be under. If you're inside under incandescent light, the light is actually very warm. If you're outside in the sunshine, the light is very cool. It tends to be bluish. Inside it tends to be orangish. Well, you have to be able to find a way to color correct that. There is no way to do that directly in this camera's settings. It has to be done once you get it back to the computer. Shutter response is not immediate. The camera focuses far more slowly than the Nikon D100, and then there's a pause before it makes the exposure. This is normal on most low-cost cameras. 
There's also no connector for an external flash, so the only flash is the built-in on-camera flash that is guaranteed to produce ugly results approximately 100% of the time that you use a flash. No way to change the ISO rating, the speed of the sensor, except by using that useless image stabilization setting. And there's no way to zoom the image while it's being exposed. Okay, let's face it, most people wouldn't want to do that, but that's a technique I sometimes use because I like the effect. The FE-180 has, of course, no ability to change lenses. It is not a single-lens reflex camera. And there is no ability to save images in TIFF format, only JPEG. So no matter what you do, the image right out of the camera is going to have some loss of quality. Shortcomings, yes, but they're all okay. I knew about them when I bought the camera. It is, after all, a snapshot camera, something I can carry along for use when something that should be photographed pops up in front of me. If you're looking for the highest quality digital images, you want a Nikon, a Canon, or an Olympus SLR. Or if money and weight are no concern to you, perhaps a Hasselblad with a digital back. If you're looking for a point-and-shoot digital camera, you'll find literally dozens of acceptable choices priced between $100 and $500. You'll find quasi-SLRs from $500 to nearly 1000 and you'll find true SLRs from about a thousand on up. Way up. And after thinking about snapshots for a while, I started thinking about film. I looked back at Technology Corner back to June 29th, 2003. That's when TechBiter was still called Technology Corner. And on June 29th, 2003, I said... This is the year you'll buy a digital camera if you don't already own one. Trust me, it's time. If you're a snapshot photographer who never has a print enlarged beyond 4x6 that you get from the grocery store, you can have a digital camera that suits your needs for less than $200. And if you're a 35mm SLR maven, you can now sell your digital soul for just $2,000. Well, it's a little bit less than four years later. Digital SLRs are now available for less than $1,000. And cameras that are far better than that $200 camera that I talked about in 2003 are priced at $100 and sometimes less. What has this meant for film? Well, here's one company's story. Eastman Kodak initially tried to fight digital photography, and rightly so at the time. At that time, film was superior to even the most expensive early digital cameras. Some of those early digital cameras cost $30,000. Why pay several thousand dollars for a camera that created pictures you couldn't tell from something that came out of a 110 camera? Remember 110 film? The negative was about the size of a piece of Super 8 movie film, and the images were horrid. But then Kodak realized that it wasn't just a film company, but a picture company. Management began scrambling to get behind the digital revolution. Kodak may yet survive, but only at the cost of tens of thousands of jobs. As photographers, both amateur and increasingly professional, switch from film to digital, there is little need for film, little need for plants that manufacture film, little need for plants that process film, little need for plants that process prints. Having prints made actually, is rare these days. We share photographs by emailing them or putting them online. 
We look at them on portable devices. Now when Granny wants to show off pictures of the grandkids, she can pull out an iPod and show hundreds of images, not just the couple that might fit in her wallet. Years ago, I said that the still camera film would follow the pattern set by movie film when handheld video cameras arrived. Movie cameras disappeared almost overnight because people no longer had to pay $10 for every three minutes worth of moving picture time, and they didn't have to splice all those little tiny reels of film together. You could buy a movie camera for $50. A video camera at that time perhaps cost $1,000 to $1,500. But if you took very many movies during the year, the economy was clear. Eastman Kodak has cut something like 30,000 jobs over the past few years. It'll shrink by another 10,000 jobs this year. For film vendors such as Kodak, digital photography has been catastrophic. Everyone in the industry knew that digital would eventually kill film sales. Most of us thought it would take longer than it has. Some of the European film vendors are already out of business. Kodak has been investing heavily in digital for the past decade. Kodak acquired the online O-Photo service, renamed it Kodak Gallery. But the demand for physical prints seems to be far lower than they anticipated. About the same time Kodak was announcing its reduction of 10,000 jobs, Fuji made a similar announcement in Japan. They are Japan's biggest film manufacturer. They've lowered projected earnings by an estimated 77% for this year and announced they will cut 5,000 jobs. Production of color film will be cut sharply because, they say, the market no longer exists. In nerdly news, Apple looks forward. The Recording Industry Association of America continues to look backward. Digital rights management, DRM, gets in the way of those who purchase music from sites such as Apple's iTunes Music Store. It limits how they can play the music and on how many devices they can play the music. Digital rights management, however, does nothing to deter high-volume pirates. I've said this before. The business model that inconveniences your paying customers while having little or no effect on your enemies is probably not a viable long-term business model. Treating your customers as if they are your enemies rarely builds loyalty. Well, this past week, Apple's Steve Jobs said that Apple would drop its fair play DRM in a heartbeat if the major record labels would license their music without requiring copy protection. Warner, EMI, Sony, and Universal demand DRM on music sold online, but simultaneously sell billions of CDs containing unprotected tracks. Jobs questions the logic of that stance. Warner Music CEO Edgar Bronfman doesn't like the idea. In a conference call with analysts this past week, he called for the continued use of DRM and said the notion that music does not deserve the same protection as software, film, video games, or other intellectual property simply because there is an unprotected legacy product in the physical world is completely without logic or merit. And, of course, as expected, the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America, has complained also. Some music companies, though, do seem to have at least some forward-thinking brains in the shop. EMI has apparently been talking with online retailers about the possibility of selling its entire digital music catalog in MP3 format without copy protection. A report in the Wall Street Journal says the idea has at least been floated internally. Apple's iPhone has been a topic of hot conversation, but Samsung may actually beat Apple to the market with a similar phone. Apple still tied up in trademark talks about its iPhone trademark, 
But Samsung has a new mobile phone with a lot of the same features and no trademark problems. Samsung will be exhibiting its UltraSmart F700 at next week's 3GSM World Conference in Barcelona, Spain. If you want to take a look at the Samsung F700, take a look at www.techbiter.com. There's a picture of it on the website. Neat-looking little phone. Samsung's F700 has a large touchscreen. It plays music. It surfs the Internet. It runs a version of Apple's Mac OS X operating system. There's also a standard keypad that slides out for those uncomfortable with touchscreen interfaces. The Samsung device has a technology advantage over Apple's Model 2. It's a third-generation system, and 3G technology is faster than what the iPhone uses. The built-in camera is also better. It's a 5-megapixel camera instead of the 2-megapixel camera that comes with Apple's iPhone. Apple plans to sell the device for $600. Samsung hasn't announced a price for its. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of February 11th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website. You just heard that a moment ago. www.techbiter.com. And you can send email from there, too. Thanks. See you next week.